Anfektung, Anfektungen, Anfektung. There's only a, a handful of German words that have ever knowingly entered my vocab, and for the most part I've either forgotten them again or, or have no use for them. But this word, Anfektungen, has made more of an impression on me. This one resonates with me. I'm not sure actually how best to pronounce that word, or even how best to translate that word. And from what I gather, nobody quite is. It's a word Martin Luther used to describe a range of anxieties that he faced from time to time. Crushing anxieties of the soul. Spiritual trials and anguish. Moments of intense and overwhelming despair. Acute awareness of his sinfulness before God and a realisation that, that he was doomed to judgment. These intense spiritual anxieties Luther called I'm not sure what scriptures Martin Luther had been looking at, but I reckon the first half of Zephaniah that we've been looking at these past few weeks is the kind of scripture that could give someone Anfektungen. And so too it's there again today in the first part of chapter 3. Sin everywhere and the necessary outcome of that. A great and awful day of the Lord is coming for everyone. Verse 8. For my decision, says God, is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. That should terrify us to the core. So how else can we respond to that if not in anguish? In his spiritual turmoil over this prospect of judgment, Martin Luther tried everything he could to, to try to make himself right with God and hope, therefore, to calm his fear. He went to extraordinary lengths to appease God. Long sessions of, of confession, days and days of fasting, torturing his body, seeking out religious relics, reciting set prayers for hours and hours, praying to various saints, religious rituals and superstitions like indulgences, the mass and burning candles and, and so on and so on. But the more he tried to find peace with God, the more his eyes were only opened to the severity of his sin and how deserving of judgment he truly was. And so there's no doubt that Martin Luther repented in all that. Which is what we realised last week that Zephaniah chapter 2 calls us to do. Fervently, Luther repented again and again and again, but he, he just could not find rest for his soul. Anfektung just manifested in more and more finessed ways in his soul. What if, for example, he wondered, what if he had forgotten about some of his earlier sins so that they remained unrepented and thus unforgiven? What if he had done something that he didn't even realise was sinful, but that he might find out on Judgment Day was sinful? What if God's judgment should come, you know, at a time when he wasn't ready for it, like, you know, in between his opportunities to confess his sins? And so on and so on with these questions. Luther's soul was plagued by these terrors and anxieties that he called Anfektungen. And as it happens, that's actually a common experience among Christians. Because so easily we only think of the one side of God as the judge, 
Fortunately, Luther found a mentor who showed him the other side to the God of the Bible. God the judge, yes, but God the saviour as well. You see, the God of Scripture is not only perfectly just, but he's perfectly merciful as well. Luther's mentor appointed him to study the Bible and, and even to start teaching through the Bible at university. Now, Luther started in the Psalms and, and he became intrigued that the writers of the Psalms so frequently called upon God's goodness, God's mercy and, and God's favour rather than trying to make a case for their own actions and their own life. He then moved on to study Romans and in Romans his soul found the peace that he'd been seeking when he came to see that salvation is the gift of God to sinners. It's not something we need to earn from God. It is the gift of God. It is his grace to us in Jesus Christ to save us from the judgment that we do deserve. To his absolute delight, Luther discovered that his own inability to make good on his sin wasn't the vital factor. Because in Jesus Christ, God had made amends for our sin. In Jesus Christ crucified, God had made amends for our sin. And from there, the more Luther searched the scriptures, the more Luther saw this fundamental truth about God, and the more he saw it in scripture, the more he found in that truth peace for his soul. God has made amends for our sin. Anyway, as I say, I don't know if Zephaniah was one of those scriptures in Luther's spiritual wrestle. But we were just starting to see last week in our journey through this book that the same picture emerging of God as, as not just the judge, but also the saviour. After a difficult few weeks of hearing God make clear how we all deserve his righteous judgment, we suddenly realised last week that there is somehow going to be a way through this awful judgment, that there will be a remnant, chapter 2 said. There will be survivors. Despite the fact that there is no one righteous, somehow we can be spared. Because God has opened up mercy within that necessary context of justice. And we'll see that mercy come beautifully clear today in chapter 3. But first, I'm afraid, a reminder of that fundamental framework of judgment in the form of another woe oracle for us to consider. Verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the Lord. It's hard to be sure which city this is directed at here in chapter 3 after the journey that we've had through Zephaniah. It follows the judgment against Nineveh, the, the capital of Assyria, at the end of chapter 2. But the woe statement here seems to mark a change of direction again in that the prophecy might be turning back around now onto the people of Judah again and the holy city of Jerusalem as it was at the beginning in chapter 1. As if to say, you will face this judgment too, Jerusalem, just like the pagan nations listed out there in chapter 2 in the middle. If not more so, actually, it seems, because the people of Jerusalem had God's presence with them. As verse 5 goes on. 
The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. Despite having God with them, the city was corrupt. It ran contrary to God's desire and instruction. The leaders were ravenous wolves. Instead of protecting the poor and the downcast, they they devoured them, verse 3. The nation's prophets weren't speaking God's word. They were fickle and treacherous, verse 4. The priests, even, were profane and corrupt. Instead of interpreting God's law and interceding for the people in the temple, they, they were distorting the law. And as I say, we seem to have come full circle back to Jerusalem in chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. The city was rebellious and defiled, and and that was despite the fact that God had been with them every day, morning by morning, wanting them to turn to his ways, chapter 3 and verse 5, but they refused to listen to his voice. God's own people should have known how God deals with such sin by how he had dealt with other sinful nations around them in the past. He says in verse 6, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. But all the more, his own people were eager. Literally, they rose early to be corrupt. Even though God was calling with his just ways morning by morning, they couldn't wait to get up in the morning for their wickedness. The people of Judah are guilty like the other nations. Even in Jerusalem, the holy city as it was supposed to be. And so we cap off in these first seven verses of chapter 3 what has been a comprehensive and, and universal judgment over now two and a half chapters of Zephaniah. Judgment is declared against all humanity, for all humanity is fallen and sinful. Martin Luther had been entirely right about this point, that we simply cannot stand as sinners before a holy God. He has to carry out perfect justice against our sin, because God is a righteous judge. But the rest of our scripture, the rest of the word of the Lord through Zephaniah, takes us into God's salvation. Salvation of a new people. This is astounding in light of that two and a half chapters worth of context and judgment. How can God save anyone? Is the question we need to wrestle with in Zephaniah here. He cannot be anything less than perfectly righteous in his judgment against sin. And we all deserve that judgment. That much has been made patently clear. So how can he now speak about saving anyone? This is where Luther, I think, got so tangled up in his own personal wrestle, so plagued by Anfechtungen. How can God possibly save a sinner like me? Verse 8 gets us right into the tension as we we bridge across these two things. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. Wait for me. That wait verb there isn't isn't used anywhere else in the Old Testament in a in a negative kind of sense. Say about judgment, it's only used positively 
about deliverance and such. If that's the case here in Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 8, then, then the call is that we should wait expectantly. We should wait for something good to come from, from God and, and yet, yet catch the tension of the rest of the verse there. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. Despite that coming judgment, verse 8, wait for me, God says, wait for me. And for deliverance and renewal, verse 9 goes on to say, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Wait for God, because amidst the cosmic judgment, somehow he is going to create a new people, gathered from beyond even the far nation of Cush, verse 10. And they will not be put to shame for their rebellious deeds against God. Uh, what? How can that possibly be? Just look at that verse, verse 11, again. This curious remnant have rebelled against God, it says there. But they will not be punished. Surely they must be punished. Haven't we just waded through two and a half fearful chapters about how sin must be judged and, and will be judged on the day of the Lord? So how is this now possible in verse 11, that these these new people God is going to gather will, will not be put to shame for their sin. If we think about that question in terms of the whole Bible story, we, we've actually tuned in there to one of the core themes of the whole Bible story. Let me jump about 650 years forward from Zephaniah to, to a later prophecy in Scripture. This is a prophecy in John chapter 11. And it's a prophecy by the high priest Caiaphas at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, the leaders in Jerusalem were all freaking out about Jesus. Uh, but one of them, John chapter 11, verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That prophetic word from Caiaphas fine-tunes that tension that we're wrestling with here in Zephaniah. How would some people be spared the judgment they deserve and, and be gathered into God's favour? not punished for their rebellion against God? By Jesus dying for them. This is actually why 
Jesus would die. If, if you read Caiaphas's prophecy there for yourselves later in, in John chapter 11. And he says that not just would Jesus die for the people from Judah, but, but as God had promised through his prophets, like, like Zephaniah here in chapter 3, people from the ends of the earth would be gathered into one people of God. Deserving judgment, but receiving salvation. Because of Jesus' death on the cross. So the Jesus filter of scripture then makes full sense of this, this whole message through Zephaniah. In the incarnate Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son took all of that righteous anger of God against our sin and the judgment that we so clearly all deserve. Everything that we've seen in the bleak two and a half opening chapters of Zephaniah, Jesus came to take that judgment for us. God redirected all of the judgment we deserve onto himself on that cross. And in this way, and only in this way, the justice and the mercy of God can come down perfectly together. And so this too is the gospel according to Zephaniah, that God will save a people who by rights he should judge. Judgment we certainly do deserve, but God is merciful, and so some will receive an undeserved salvation from God. If we will but acknowledge our sin, Zephaniah chapter 1, and humbly repent, Zephaniah chapter 2, then, then we can let our judgment be resolved by God himself, and we will be saved. And in doing this, God renews a people for himself. Look back at verse 11 again. God will remove all the proud people. Recall, if you will, that theme of pride running through chapters 1 and 2 that, that had people not turning to God in their sinful pride. I will remove that pride, God says in verse 11. And I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Martin Luther had searched frantically for refuge everywhere else, as you and I might be tempted to, too. But the survivors of this judgment will be humble and lowly, insufficient in their own efforts, and so they will be entirely dependent on what God will do in his mercy. So they will seek their refuge, not in their own efforts, but in the name of the Lord. Their hope comes solely from God's good mercy. It is entirely undeserved by them. There is no one righteous among them. But God is merciful, and we can humbly call on him to save. And if you know your sinfulness, as well as Martin Luther knew his, and the reality of judgment that rightly therefore hangs over you, then there can only be one response to discovering the God who is both judge and saviour. Verse 14, sing. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. 
He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let your hands not grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. What a glorious future this is pointing to here at the end of Zephaniah's prophecy. And brothers and sisters, why wouldn't you and I sing just as loudly as we meet here today as God's people? We know more than the people of Judah in 630 BC when this prophecy first came. We know the full revelation of God in the whole of Scripture. We know how God resolves the tension here in Zephaniah chapter 3. How he can save when by rights he should judge. We know that God gave us the Son. Fear not, daughter of Zion. The King of Israel is in your midst. Zephaniah finishes from verse 14 on, I would put it to you, with words that found closure 650-some years later when Jesus rode into Jerusalem triumphantly. From John chapter 12. So the people took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Jesus, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The donkey part comes from Zechariah, but the language there is closer to Zephaniah, right here at the end of this scripture. Fear not, daughter of Zion, the king of Israel is in your midst, and he comes to die for your sins, to take away the judgments against his people, all who will turn to him and trust in the mercy of their God. This is the key theme of scripture that Zephaniah is setting us up for here, that Christ died to save sinners. Wait for me, God says, Zephaniah 3 verse 8. God has purposed this redemption from the beginning. God has spared us the judgment by intervening on our behalf. If only we will receive this gift of salvation. God gave us his Son, so that whosoever should believe in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. We won't get what we deserve if our trust is in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. This be the gospel. We won't get what we truly deserve. It is his day. He is the Lord of the day. So when the day of the Lord comes, his people will be safe. Saved because they found refuge in his good name. If that doesn't fill us with a fundamental sense of joy and and anticipation, then and we need to check again that we have acknowledged our sinful state, Zephaniah chapter 1, and that we have repented of our sin, Zephaniah chapter 2, and that we have understood this gospel and put our trust completely in Jesus, the Son of God who took away the judgment against us. 
we aren't to live with one eye trained onto that glorious truth and, and the other searching for a way to try to shore up for ourselves some kind of extra merit. The way Martin Luther had been obsessively trying to do is as if we could contribute towards our salvation. No, there is no gospel plus. And everything else you search after will perish and can only leave you staring down judgment again. And so all those things we might try to do to, to secure our own salvation, it will ultimately only lead us deeper and deeper into Luther's Anfechtung. If our hope is in ourselves, we will end up tortured by spiritual anxiety. We must rather be humble and lowly and seek our refuge in the name of the Lord. We must throw ourselves completely upon the mercy of God, the Saviour, and simply wait, as verse 8 puts it. Wait upon the Lord. Wait expectantly for his mercy in the middle of judgment and wait with confident joy in that mercy. Sing with praise for his great name what he has promised to do for us. Wait for it. And sing, verse 14, rejoice with all your heart. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. May there be peace in your soul. We can take it a step further from that point, though, and, and let God now do what he has promised to, to now do in us as his saved people. As per verse 9 and so on peppered through here, we should let his word humble us all the more. We should let him purify our speech so that we call only on him. We should let him guide us towards doing justice and speaking truthfully. Look at these changes peppered through here that God has promised to bring about in this new people that he saves in this beautiful poem at the end of Zephaniah 3. If you have humbly repented and trusted in Jesus, then you are part of this new people that God is gathering. And all of this poetry here is for you. He has saved you and now he is making you new. And if you and I have understood the sheer grace in this salvation from such a deserved judgment, then we should be wanting him to work these changes in us as, as we look forward now to the day of the Lord. But we mustn't get the cart before the horse as Martin Luther had at first done. Salvation comes to us first when we turn to God and repent and find refuge in his name. Then he sets about making us new. It's a tough slog, but Zephaniah shows us how we go from fearing the day of the Lord to looking forward to it. The three chapters we've been through give us three steps. Acknowledge, repent, and then confidently, joyfully, wait. Reality is, though, that we, we still might get bouts now and then of, of 
Luther's Anfechtungen, as, as even he did too, after he discovered these truths. But gradually we start to find that those fears aren't taking us into despair anymore, but just deeper and deeper into the beautiful gospel of our Jesus who saves. He is the Lord of the day, and our salvation rests on his name. So as we bring this journey through Zephaniah to a close, rejoice, I say. Rejoice over the final song here that comes in chapter 3. It can only be properly understood and it can only be properly rejoiced in this song when we grasp those first two and a half chapters, of course, and thereby come to see our deep and utter need for God's mercy. But we spent three weeks there, so, so this week just enjoy the final song, meditating over this beautiful promise of God at the end of chapter 3. Listen to this sweet song and, and think about this sure salvation that he has put forward for us. Think about it from his perspective on all this. Verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He will gather us in, verse 18 goes on, and save us and turn our shame into praise because he loves us. This stuff is the antidote to the unfectung should it ever come your way. Should you ever be paralysed with despair thinking about that day when you will stand before God? Should you ever be tormented by the thought how or, or why even would God possibly save someone like me? Because he loves you and desires that you be saved. The God of Scripture, whether it's in Genesis or John or Psalms or Romans or even here in, in Zephaniah, the judging and yet saving God of the Bible is the antidote to the infecting of our souls. Our salvation is sure and true because it rests upon his great name. He will quieten our anxieties with his love. He will rejoice over us with gladness. He will exult over us with loud singing of his own. This is our God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scripture and we thank you for this book we've been studying in Zephaniah. It's been a difficult journey, Father. We pray that you would help us to continue to dwell on it and, and to receive its message that despite all the uncertain bits in there about cities and nations and so on going on at the time back then, that, that we would nevertheless discover its message, that we would discover you and find that the peace of a certain salvation that can only be found in you. We thank you for being a perfect and holy, judging and yet saving God 
who desires for us to be saved. Seal that truth in our hearts forever and ever. Seal it in our hearts and and let it now change the way we live. In Jesus' name.